Find Your Feet with the Find Your Feet podcast. Morning, afternoon, evening. Welcome to the Find Your Feet podcast. And I thank you for returning if you're returning. And I thank all the new listeners for tuning in because I really want to use this medium of podcasting to help us all to explore the ways in which we find our feet and to delve beneath the stories and the what's of extraordinary people to find their whys and their hows. Because I think it's from this deeper level of understanding that we can gain the tips and tricks that can help us to get closer to our truest selves. So today's conversation is with Amy Nielsen. She's a medical practitioner and what she classed herself as in her writing, a wandering soul. Amy is an Australian trained medical practitioner specializing in the delivery of health to complex populations in austere and resource limited settings. And she's particularly interested in the ethics and practicality of how we can deliver optimal healthcare. She's worked in regional Australia and also with asylum seekers, but she spent the last four years working overseas with Red Cross and Médecins Sans Frontières in places like Sierra Leone, Lebanon, South Sudan, Syria, and Iraq. In fact, her first stint four years ago was Sierra Leone working with the Ebola outbreak. I guess what I wanted to find out from Amy is how she deals with the complex emotional situations of not only what she goes in to face and to see as a medical practitioner, but also how she reconciles what she's seen with when she returns home. And Amy asked in return whether we could also have a bit of a discussion towards the end of the podcast on how you can I guess, keep your chin up and maintain health and well-being when you have very limited resources available to you for your exercise and your personal release time. And for someone who grew up as an elite swimmer and who's always prided herself in her health and well-being, you could understand this would be a huge challenge for Amy. So today's conversation is varied. We go deep, we go hard. I found it incredibly painful reading her writing and I'm hoping that I can put up these links for you too. Before we get into the conversation with Amy, I just want to make a mention of Find Your Feet, our outdoor retail store selling apparel and equipment down here in Hobart, Tasmania. But we're an online store and we're not here to add to consumerism in the world. In fact, that my one of my greatest values is actually to live a simple, humble life filled with humility. So Find Your Feet, it serves people to try to help you to get outside and into the depths of these places that need to be seen so that we can learn to love them and then want to protect them. I'm here with Find Your Feet to try to empower people to be outside and to live the healthiest versions of themselves. So if you can support us at Find Your Feet, if you need anything for your wild adventures and to play wild or perform wild, please go to the website www.findyourfeet.com.au. Furthermore, we're just preparing our Find Your Feet tours and our Find Your Feet tours are about taking people away from their normal lives to awesome places like Italy, France, Japan, Bulgaria, Albania, Tasmania, you name it, we go there. And in 2020, we're also excited to be delivering a trip to Kenya. So if you'd like to come away with us to turn off your normal life and find a a space and a really amazing group of friends that you'll be traveling with 
to learn to be wilder and to play wilder, we would love to have you. So you can go to our website, findyourfeettours.com.au and express interest through the contact page. We'd love to have you. Those tools will be coming out over the next few months. And finally, don't forget that there's a huge number of resources on my own website. All of the websites are linked together. If you get confused, just head to one and you'll find the others. But I would love to be able to help you. I work as a keynote speaker, a performance consultant. I've got training planner resources. I've got a blog, articles. There's a number of resources there as well as the podcast. So you can head over to hannyolston.com.au. Enough from me. I can't wait to get into this conversation with Amy and I hope that you get as much out of it as I did. Thank you. is an incredible place but um it has its challenges <laughs> and I can't say as much as like I've actually had to get back in the pool we've had a bit of an injury and yeah. back in the pool and actually like slowly learning to love it again but those swimming days for me I can't say they were the happiest times of my life like mm-hmm. I'm, I was actually just curious to know did you actually enjoy enjoy that squat environment and did you have dreams about like where you wanted to be when you were I swimming? think it was different for me because I was 21 20 21 and I'd I'd swum a lot throughout my life but I had quite severe dermatitis and so I couldn't always swim as much as I wanted to and I just sort of started to outgrow that a little bit and I just moved down from Queensland and was studying and uh, it was an opportunity so being a part of that squad where everyone was mostly sort of younger faster swimmers and I was trying to do distance training but doing that kind of nine sessions a week, you know, which was insane, but it was, um, it was a great feeling. Like I just always smelled of chlorine and yeah, I, I kind of, I loved being a part of that, but I also didn't have any pressure to perform that, yeah. that some of the younger squad members had. I think. Yeah. Yeah. It really, it stuck with me so much that when I was in the Ebola outbreak, all you could smell was chlorine. Okay. And it was this really kind of freakishly comforting smell. Yeah. Huh, interesting. <laughs> yeah. I mean, yeah, I used to get teased a lot. <laughs> yeah. But always, like at school, always swimming, like, um, smelling like chlorine. Mm, yeah. And your dress would be, like, pulled taut across your shoulders from all the butterfly that we used to do. And, yeah. Um, yeah. But I just, I found that world, it was just too regimented for me. And now that, like, I guess time's passed and you get to know your personality and your values more. But, like, we were just saying as you walked in the front door that, you know, we're both gypsies. Yeah. Yeah. And um, actually, when I – that brings me that I was reading – I was reading – I read all of your blogs. You read all of them? Yeah. That's a lot of – I was kind of – I was kind of amazed to some degree that you were, like, when you wrote them – or sent them to me you're apologizing almost for saying like you don't have to read them all um (laughs) and your writing is extraordinary like i I loved your writing uh and it it really captured without knowing at all what you've been through in those um situations uh for me like i could really um visualize what you were trying to explain but one thing that jumped out at me was you called yourself a wandering soul <laughs> I've never heard it like that I mean I've just <laughs> critically said to myself you're a gypsy honey you've got to learn to deal with that but like where did that terminology come from for you wandering <clears throat> I, I don't know the exact origin uh, I have different quotes and things that float around my head I think there's one from Tolkien wasn't it they're not all who wander are lost um, when I was in 
Lebanon. I think it was my first MSF job. A friend of mine sent me uh, a pendant that had a globe on one side and then that quote on the back. And that was really special at that time. So it's, it's become a word that's, yeah, a part of who I am. I don't know the exact beginning, but that, yeah. that's probably, probably was a part of it. Yeah. Have you, I'm curious on it. I'm going to probably go, I warn you like all over the place in a million times. <laughs> all over the place. <laughs> and normally when you're like talking, I'll be like, my brain will be trying to ask me a million awesome. questions. Um, but I'm kind of curious to know, did you like set out on this pathway with intent in doing what you're doing, working in, in we'll call it conflict zones for now, mm-hmm. but in area, um, in a work setting in medicine with limited resources is the other way we can probably think about it. Um, yeah. Did you intentionally go down that track or have you slowly over time really worked hard to understand your values and where you kind of need to go? Um, Very much a bit of both. Okay. So again, I think a bit of that wanderer is the, the dreamer. You know, I think as a kid, I was really that sort of dreamer that didn't know what they were doing or where or how. And I, I've never been enormously focused. I'm, I'm still a hopeless ideas person and a terrible finisher. And I have many papers and half-written articles to attest to this. <laughs> um, I, yeah, I was actually reflecting on this today when I, uh, I was doing this other piece was I have this, it, it's corny, hey, but I have this really strong memory of, um, of watching the, was it 1984, 85 Ethiopian famine on television in our, you know, suburban brick box home in Brisbane. And that was a really powerful thing for me. It was, it was an image, I guess. It was an image that I've um, retained throughout a lot of my life. And I think there's a vocational sense to what I do. But there's also been a lot of, um, a lot of take it as it comes and a lot of life gets in the way. And, um, you know, I, I think there are many people that have entered the sort of work that I do at much more junior stages of their medical career. And I was, you know, falling in love and trying random jobs in random places and doing other bits and pieces. And I never, I I probably never turned down other things to do this. I just kind of wound my way there. It probably comes back to the wandering. (laughs) It's funny because like looking at, I mean, everything that I obviously had to look at was a bit more black and white and I asked you for your CV. And when I looked at your CV, that is not... That is not the impression that came to mind. There, I had, there was a slight element of it when I saw that generally you stayed in positions for a relatively short period of time. Yes, I'm an excellent resigner. But, <laughs> but our generation is now allowed to do that. Yeah, it's common that knowledge that yeah. we are very um, more transient than our parents were. Mm. But um, I, I guess I saw that and just saw someone who was so driven. Like, I couldn't believe, like, you said you're 42. And for anyone listening, if you were to look at that CV, you'd be <laughs> fairly gobsmacked <laughs> about, like, how much you've done. And it, to me, it looked like quite a clear progression, someone who kind of knew where they wanted to get to. I think that's where the, there's both sides to it. Yeah, there's certainly been that overarching goal. I, I had, um, when I was an intern, I printed out the requirements for ICRC, the International Committee of the Red Cross, for what what you need to do to work as a doctor. And I did work towards that, which has really been a a core goal. Um, And that meant acquiring certain generalist experience and paediatrics and women's health and emergency medicine. And that was certainly always a, a part of it, yeah. So did you, when you went into medicine, did you go in with that, like, 
that dream then or was the dream starting as you got into it and yeah we I, I went in with this dream and, and, and plan to a degree I, I very much nearly didn't go into medicine I I was um I finished my science degree and that was in philosophy it was <laughs> other things I did notice that <laughs> it was in mathematics logic and philosophy of science um which again has its own prosaic part to it it was because we were swimming so much so i started doing conventional science subjects but they had too many contact hours so i dumped them all and did maths and uh maths came naturally to me i'd done a lot of it at school and i'd never done science (laughs) (laughs) the flip side is i like don't know any science (laughs) i hope you know a little bit if you're a doctor just but um yeah so I kind of ended up with that degree and then I went to Romania and again that was a little bit unplanned I I had the option of starting medicine and um I had a family member who was unwell and had other things happening so I finished my degree six months late so I had this kind of time to do something with and I went to Romania and I was working with orphan kids and and that was my first toe in the water of aid work i was incredibly naive um it was amazing i came back and i wanted to return and i had an offer of a master's in international development and um, it was actually graham lynch who some tasmanians will know who's i think he's i guess he's still ceo of heart foundation he's actually on the board oh there you go (laughs) australian institute can't be buried which we were just talking about so he's father of some friends of mine and I remember saying to him one day I just can't decide what to do and he sort of looked at me somewhat incredulously and said no one turns down an offer of medicine and I thought okay all right I did I did again when I I, I'd left med and then life had happened a lot of life and I got back in and I turned it down there you go yeah it's tough though it's a big decision like you were saying like med is a big vortex and you've got to really want to do it I think that's it you know it takes up so much of your life and I really respect the decision not to do it you know I think that's yeah it's it's something that if you take it on board you 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 do have to give a certain amount to and you do eventually find you know this elusive concept of balance and you find what works for you but it, it, for me it's been valuable in terms of I think going into that humanitarian sector with with some really concrete skills has been what I've wanted to offer other people do it in different ways and, and hats off to them um, but yeah. yeah I think if you're coming into it as a mature age student that's where like um I think where the best doctors come from you know and I speak very openly about that when I was in med school there were a lot of kids coming straight out of school and were there because it was prestigious and they got the Mm, scores to do it and there was a lot of drinking a lot of partying and then yet the mature age students coming in just had a focus and had a goal and knew where they wanted to get to and it sounds like you're probably a lot more in that camp yeah Yeah. I probably was I was 30 when I was started work as an intern so I was late 20s as a student yeah yeah certainly was was there with a certain perspective and so going back then the question around values Mm. I guess like what probably stepping back if you (laughs) we haven't seen each other for years you haven't listened to the podcast before but I guess what really fascinates me is about not so much what people do but why they do it and we'll we will talk about what you do but um I'm curious to know whether you 
conscientiously try to think about the way you live your life and, and therefore what you need to do in your life to meet your values or do you just let intuition and gut instinct kind of drive you forward and opportunities that pop up? I think more the former. I really am at heart a philosopher that practices medicine. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> really, I need a little bit of science. Um, the and you, yeah, so that probably comes back to what you were asking early on. The it, increasingly the ethics of what I do is a part of why I do it, of of how I do it. You you have to. I think to survive a career like this and to thrive in a career like this. It helps to be quite purposeful, or perhaps I'm not saying it the right way. That, that that's that's the way it works for me. You know, okay. there are other people that um, do their job and do it well and have you know certain career, cert, sorry, certain medical skill set, and they can offer that in humanitarian settings, and that's an amazing thing to do. I've probably approached more my career as uh, the humanitarian work is the long term plan. And I engage a lot with that space of why we're in that space, what our responsibilities are, what independence is, what neutrality is, what transience is, how it means to exist in this space, um, what the rights are of people who live in these incredibly vulnerable positions and how we respect their world, I think, matters a lot to me. And how do you, like, do you just keep all that in your head and chew it over and process it until you feel like you reach an outcome or do you explore it through your writing like we're talking about writing just before or um do you have mentors do you have, do you do courses like I'm kind of curious because mm. I guess like I I'm so fascinated by how we can be the best versions of us and how different people who are obviously at you know up there at the top of their game like I see you in your medical career like I'm curious to know how people get there yeah I think there was some early I think we all have early influences don't we and we all have been people that we um latch onto as mentors along the way Mm -hmm. again I I found that a pretty purposeful process Mm -hmm. um I think yeah I feel like these opportunities are available but you do have to take the time to grab them and you have Mm -hmm. to nurture those relationships, particularly in a pretty transient life. Um, mm-hmm. As you said, I've, I've moved through a lot of different jobs. So that's meant instead of having one kind of home or hospital or something, I've had uh, people that I've made a point of keeping in contact with who keep me accountable throughout my um, clinical career. Mm-hmm. Uh, and those they, they kind of keep getting added to. So there's now a kind of core group that you've had for years, but there's also new people. One of the really early influences in my life was I started my master's in public health and tropical medicine while I was still in medical school. And I did a lot of uh, reading of a guy called Paul Farmer. And he's an anthropologist and an infectious disease physician. He founded Partners in Health. And he talks a lot about structural violence and how structures or societal structures visit harm upon people and what uh, is our responsibility to respond to that. And he's got this quote, which I've used interminably in in talks and I I do keep referring to, which is to say really that if healthcare is a human right, then who is human enough to have that right? Hmm. Yeah. It's probably for me a a core. I can see that's a core because when I read all those articles about your time in some really difficult overseas situations, that seemed to be like a very, very common theme that popped up and you were basically questioning like, 
how is it that some people have access to optimal health care and above optimal health care in some situations and how is it that others don't even have enough to feed themselves on and I read the one about the nine-year-old girl coming in in a malnourished state and I mean like it was really hard to read yeah yeah it's intense that piece yeah it it is but I but like you say um it needs to be heard and there were a few quotes that really came up for me um one was actually write hard and clear about what hurts. That was like a really poignant quote for me. I think it was a quote. Hemingway, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, it's a quote of a quote. Yeah, I think yeah, it was Hemingway. Yeah. Um, and the second one was if you don't let pain transform you, you'll yeah. transmit it. Yeah. And that that probably of every single thing you wrote <laughs> was the thing that actually really hit me the hardest. And so it raises for me a quote. I want to. I've got quite a few questions in that bucket, but one was. Do you feel like what you're seeing and the needs of these people and the plights that you see overseas, are they being heard enough and being heard, particularly in our very fortunate Western countries? Um, no, I don't think they are. Um, my increasing interest is in conflict zones and, and some of what we call chronic conflict or forgotten conflict. Um, I don't probably have the media knowledge to expound this ad nauseum but there is certainly a sense of saturated spaces Mm. um i i can't help thinking people are not aware of enough of their own privilege here and i I, look i I tread carefully in this space because um everybody has their worlds and their challenges and i really don't ever want to take away from that And, and i also exist in this incredibly privileged space but you know, if if something is hard here or something is hard in our lives, then how much harder is it when you have no certainty of where you live or your, you know, roof is a bit of plastic sheeting or you have no food security and you, your kids have all died of meningitis. And so, you know, there's there's so much out there in terms of movement of people and I am, I, I'm really increasingly dumbfounded at the lack of compassion globally to that movement of, of people. Um, we acknowledge conflict zones is problematic but we don't accept the outcome of of those conflict zones i guess has been my concern about that Mm. yeah do you find that that like makes it really hard to come back to home or let's say australia but i think (laughs) you mentioned about heading back to like coming out of some of these places and going straight back to geneva which is such a like privileged society in so many ways um like do you find that coming back you watch people walking down the street and just struggle to like reconcile what you've seen with these lives that you see now uh yes you you absolutely do it gets a bit more nuanced to it over time um you you certainly have the immediacy and i think that was the 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 little piece after most of wandering around neon going about how, how just how incredibly beautiful it was which is yeah just down the road from geneva Uh, that immediacy always strikes you but then there are stages my friend Nat talks about the thousand yard stare which you absolutely seem to always have after conflict zones you know just take some time to renormalize your your surroundings probably the biggest challenge I've had over the years has been moving in and out of uh, clinical medicine in um, uh, humanitarian jobs and back in Australia the you know the day-to-day reality of people's lives is people's lives you know and I guess I don't probably don't find myself as critical of that but being in a medical system that is increasingly 
focused on its medico-legal challenges and on delivering, you know, very quaternary care when there is so much global need is a space I find much harder to deal with. So in the work setting, that's the hardest. Mm, yeah. yeah, right. I find that really interesting. I mean, I kind of get that because... I know, for example, you've done a placement in the same hospital as my mother and yeah, I've been yeah. in there a huge number of times as a patient and also <laughs> to visit her in, in there and say hi. And I mean, yeah, it seems like there's a hugely well set up emergency mm. department and then you get into places like Sierra Leone or I'm sure those Iraq, I think you've been, mm-hmm. Syria. Um, yeah. And no doubt you're just faced with a shortage of everything and a shortage of people and environment that's probably not super clean and yeah. guessing. Yeah. What yeah. what is it like? Like where's been the most challenging place you've worked? Oh, South Sudan. Yeah. I think South Sudan is the most challenging place a lot of people work, but it depends on which challenge, to be fair. But South Sudan is one of the poorest countries in the world. It's you know, comes close to being a failed state, depending on your nomenclature. Uh, it's a chronic conflict that has gone on for so long in a fairly arid region with um, um, great sort of food insecurity, um, no, you know, very poor healthcare systems. This is, was a new country, an exciting new country that probably didn't have a chance to get on its feet before um, the next lot of conflicts set in. Yeah, so that's been that's probably the most complex place I've worked. It's also the place I've loved the most. And mm-hmm. I do I do want to touch on the point that you said before about um, letting pain transform you because it was in South Sudan that that became a topic. And that uh, comment comes from a friend of mine, Julia Vidal, who's a sociologist in Hobart, who emailed me that at the time. And it is an incredibly powerful concept, so I'm interested yeah. that you picked up on that. Well, I'm like it really really hit me i mean and you're what you said as earlier which probably leads into this discussion is that you can't deny that everyone here has challenges in their lives and so you like you need to respect that when you're talking about you know wanting to also highlight to people that there are people on the planet that are well and truly worse off than we are Mm. but when you have gone through huge life events when sometimes they can be incredibly confronting i don't know about you but my way of dealing with it at the time was to just keep running (laughs) to keep running yeah pretty much literally yeah you just keep swimming (laughs) yeah and then i think you reach a point in your life where maybe you grow up or maybe you stop running literally Mm. and um and i think some things can come back and bite you and so but but then as you start to stop running, sometimes you can that pain can kind of come back to surface and mm. you deal with it all over again. And I think for me, like there's been a bit of that in in recent years. And and sometimes like it's hard not to transmit it, yeah, you know. For sure. And you can transmit it in as simple as like shrugging into yourself and like one of my friends once said like how do you look like a hermit crab (laughs) and and that's transmitting it isn't it like it's like i don't want to i don't want to give it to you i don't want to i don't want you to feel my pain therefore i'm gonna store it yeah Yeah. but you transmit it nonetheless so i'm curious to know with everything that you've seen and experienced and i'm sure in your work scene and i'm sure there must be life struggles that you've had like every other human on the planet but like (laughs) how have you learned to transform pain and use it in a way that's more beneficial than it is hurtful yeah i'm going to go with definite work in progress on that front i think 
And I think the important thing there is finding and allowing ourselves space to be human, you know. I, I find nothing more distressing than getting on social media, which is a very rare event for me as I don't have mm. any accounts. Um, but seeing all these kind of people talking about balance and happiness and this, and I kind of just sort of, you know, reel back and wonder if that's anyone's real world. Mm. Um, when Julia sent me that stuff about um, pain, you know, I, it, it was enormously informative, but that's been, that was perhaps the beginning of, of years of thinking through her comments. And um, I don't have any immediate answers. I, like you, I think you're trying to find a way through. I, there's a Barbara Kingsolver quote from one of her wonderful books, which does, I can't remember it verbatim, but it does also talk about, I, I kept swimming because when I stopped, my hair circled around me and, you know, you can picture the image mm. and she said, and then I couldn't breathe. So I started swimming again. And there is a sense of that, but to say that we keep running or keep swimming to avoid grief is also to, I think, belittle the, the reality of our human experience in those moments. You, you do absolutely grow through that. I, yeah. I took some time after South Sudan to make some decisions about whether I would work long-term in that sector. And I've sort of come to the end at the moment now of a two-year period of far more self-reflection than I would like, <laughs> you know, um, which has very much led me back to, to where I want to be. But, um, yeah, it's been a bit of soul mining. Yeah, but, it, but like you say, like, grief can and trauma and all of those things that are wrapped up in pain, like, it is what we grow stronger from, yeah. I think. In, you might not feel like it in the moments of it, but I think it, it does eventually. Even if you've run from it for 10 yeah. or 12 years, eventually it will catch up and you yeah. need to kind of confront it. But when you do, I think you grow stronger. And I think where we can heal as people is if we can keep confronting it quicker. So mm. it, it's fine to keep moving, but, but don't run away from yeah. things. Yeah. yeah. But um, I find it, I do find it really interesting. I think writing is such a healthy way to explore it. And it seems like you've used that medium to some degree. Writing's really interesting. A lot of people ask me if I write for catharsis and I really don't. Mm-hmm. I, I find those, those writing pieces are mostly quite purposeful. Mm-hmm. They're a bit more essay structured and they take a lot out of me. I write probably to come back to one of your earlier points, which is how do we communicate what's going on in that space? Mm. And I'm looking for ways to do that a little bit differently. I'm not a journalist. There's enough stories told by journalists in their own media that I don't think I would add any value in that space. I, I yeah, used to put some bits on the blog sites and then I've kind of paused. I would like to find a way to put some work together that communicates to the audience I, I grew up with, I think, you know, to, which really is very white middle class Australia people that are kind and compassionate but busy in their own lives um so the the writing is really um trying to use the depth of exposure that i have i think as a a a doctor in a humanitarian setting you you are very very close to people's experience and they trust you a lot so trying to use the witnessing of those moments faithfully in a way that might communicate to people in a broader world that uh in a way that will reach them Mm. and so if it reaches them like it reached my heart what what do you want people to hear about your work overseas like what's i guess what's the the outcome 
Gee, that's a good question. I don't think I've thought of that. (laughs) (laughs) Oops, sorry. (laughs) No, it's a great question, isn't it? I think... Because we're just, we're we're saturated. Mm. And I think, and I was thinking about this when I was preparing for the podcast, because my last podcast guest was David Bowman, totally taking a tangent here, but his um, area of expertise is fire ecology and the effect that fire has on our biology, but also like human health. Um, So he's called in all over the world to like Chile and all sorts of places where they've had these huge, huge fire crises happen. And the reason why I bring it up is because he kept saying, this is what climate change looks like. Mm -hmm. And climate change is gonna pose massive risk to our planet, not just from rising sea levels and temperatures getting warmer but the fact that it's going to change food production it's going to change the way the deserts move and displace people it's going to change rising sea levels so the situations that you keep finding yourself in um, in your work are probably more likely to happen more frequently and more widespread so I guess it's important for uh, I believe for people to hear what you have to say but I'm curious to know what to do with what them. to do with it because people are bombarded by the media yeah. social media has changed that landscape in the online That's space true. and i remember this when i was studying medicine and there was a huge amount being said about it at the time about how humans only have a certain amount of empathy they can give mm-hmm. and they tend to hold it local so like it's it's rare for people like yourself to be able to look outside your bubble and go Oh, you know, I could help over there. So <laughs> I guess to take probably if you're trying to reduce to something applicable out of what you're saying, there's probably two core points. One is I really struggle with Australia's national reaction to refugees. Mm-hmm. I I remember the Tampa being off the coast of Australia and I have carefully followed our politics since two thousand and one at that point. And you watch the interaction between um, uh, political desire and um, how the public is led or leads. And I think you know this is this is probably for me a difficult space to to explain. But but there's been a lot of fear mongering. There's been a lot of double speak, and there's no way that the degree of vilification of asylum seekers that we have had in Australia is in any way necessary. So in terms of looking close to home and how you take the people that I see in Iraq or Syria or Lebanon or South Sudan and treat them with respect, I think that's there's a huge need to do that right here. Mm. You know, the, the statistical analysis of the, the nonsense on the South Sudanese gangs showed it to be nonsense, you mm. know? So why... Why do we have this underlying xenophobia that persists in our culture? Mm. That's probably one. The second thing is is absolutely a resounding point on climate change is that you're absolutely right that we're seeing those linkages in the humanitarian sector. It's not um, a topic that I know understand in depth, but there's certainly well-documented effect of climate change um, as a driver for conflict. Mm. and then you know the conflict then perpetuates these these migration challenges absolutely yeah and and when you listen to Dave Bowman speak it could be huge and it could be sooner than everyone expects as well and my very first guest on this podcast and I always mention him but for some reason his 
conversation was just so poignant for me. Um, there's a guy by in the name of Paolo D'Souza who actually started as a NASA scientist. Wow. <laughs> and he's worked out that the technology that he's been creating to track rovers on Mars is relevant for how they could track insect species, particularly honeybees around the world um, to try and work out why we have like what the plight of them is effectively and he was saying that for instance the cost of apples could be a hundred dollars a kilo within the next five years because it's just so huge and even these fire events so everything is linked like i find mm. every conversation is linked because these fire events managed to wipe out a huge number of our native honeybee populations and also a lot of the apiarist sites that yeah. we had. So, you know, the challenge is just growing yeah. and it could be growing faster than we expect. And, yeah, so I guess, like, I'm on a bit of a monologue, but I, but I feel like why I want to have these conversations is because your voice might be being heard really strongly in that medical setting, but it's so relevant to all of us and the choices that we make in our own lives. Yeah, I mean, you're absolutely right that it's all interconnected and it's this sense that you were referring to before when I came about consumerism and, you know, this world that we've created and grown up in and that we really need to learn to think differently mm. about and so that our focus doesn't need to be on um, what we you know consume in our own local world we could do an awful lot of that and and turn a little bit more of our gaze uh, globally even you know outward locally yeah yeah one of the most poignant um, conversations that I remember or lectures I remember when I was at med school was with a human biologist and, and an epidemiologist and she was talking about how if the first world you know western world countries could support or prop up these third world countries like the south sudans of the world if we could prop them up until they'd worked it out on in some research study but 2100 was what she was saying so if we effectively could prop them up it was for the next 90 odd, odd years 95 odd years when she gave this lecture that in that time we could help create all the systems that those countries would need and it's at the point where they believe the global population will begin to decline Okay. And that these countries would then be on their own feet. And I, was, I don't know why I'm bringing it up, but it, it is it's probably one of the most yeah most memorable lectures I had. You know, I was mm. thinking about it going, you probably wouldn't, yeah, would it be such a burden on a system to effectively like buddy every every wealthy country up to <laughs> one that needs, needs a hand? I don't think it would be a burden on a system. I think we have incredible wealth here that is you know seen in every duplicate flat screen television in in each household, but. But I don't think it's the answer. Mm. And I guess the, I think what you're describing is fairly binary in some ways. Mm. And I'm the, sure it is. Yeah. <laughs> I might not have been paying attention. No, no, no you're right. And everyone has different perspectives. But, but I think one thing we know in that humanitarian sector as a whole is you can't just inject money and, and expect mm. outcomes. You know, you need autonomy and independence and local governance and local buy-in. Um, and that interrelation with South Sudan is a great example. Um, the politics of, of South Sudan are, are manifestly complex, but you know there was a lot of international energy put into South Sudan as it as it became a new nation, and then I think a lot of frustration when it descended into civil war. Um, and none of that is withstanding the fact that there's a, a whole you know colonial imperialist history behind all that that. That affects how how government structures have formed and how people have made the choices that they do so i don't think we're 
off the hook historically and I don't think we can use um, imperialistic aid structures to repair those. Mm. So, you know, humanitarianism as a whole really is moving, I think, into a much more locally driven mindset, which is exciting and is fantastic. And we see that in, um, you know, in, in many different organisations throughout the sector. Mm. And I picked that up in your in your writing and in your resume that a lot of the work that you're brought in to do is yes treat and help but also educate and set up educational systems is that correct yeah absolutely you know we certainly try to have a pretty um light footprint on the ground in terms of um, expatriate or international staff and be building local teams wherever we can yeah so i do a lot of that so where did you start with that work so it was four years ago is that correct four yeah i guess that was so Oh, January 2015. Okay. Mm. Yeah, the Ebola outbreak in Sierra Leone. Okay. Do you mind if we, like, talk about it a little? I'd love to... I mean, I don't, I don't. I wish I didn't have to ask the question about <laughs> what was it like, but I, but I would love to know what it, was, what it was like. So from the moment when you... Like, how did you get involved? Is it you applied for Metesso Frontier to, to go in there, or did they tap you on the shoulder? Like, how does that even work? Uh, so Ebola outbreak was 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 large, as you know, and very difficult to staff. I was working as a, an emergency consultant at the time at Ipswich Hospital in Brisbane, and I was already very keen to move into this line of work, and it was about the right time. I applied to I went actually went with Red Cross, so I applied okay. to Australian Red Cross. Um, the International Federation of the Red Cross had the lead for all Red Cross societies in the West African outbreak. Uh, there was some delay in that process, so these organisations tend to um, not have a huge international HR compared to their needs, so there's always a lot of uh, room to move, took a mm-hmm. bit of time, um, but but was recruited through Australian Red Cross to work for IFRC, who were based in Geneva, and they then sent me on to Sierra Leone. So do they have... Are there more people than there are jobs or is there always a shortage of people to go and do this sort of work? I don't really know the answer to that, actually. Okay. There's certainly always a need, but I'm not sure that there's a shortage. Okay. You know, my understanding is within MSF, we, have, uh, we, we could certainly use more experienced staff, but uh, we do have a lot of people keen to at least come and do a first position. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And so, I mean, Ebola mm. frightened the off everyone <laughs> I don't even know how to say that diplomatically I mean like it was terrifying like it was scary it was all over the media everywhere yeah, um, even really in little tabsy down here so what was it like feeling like you were going to be sent into the front line of an Ebola outbreak yeah Ebola was terrifying hey? I wanted to be there more than anything in the world I was very focused on the fact that if not me then who you know Mm. so if this needs to be done then again why are we any um less responsible than anyone else and i was keen to be there i it had taken a number of months to get leave from my job so i'd read everything that there was and and was was very up on on um, all this sort of new research coming out because that was such a big outbreak um and arrived on the ground and you know to say it's not scary would be silly like absolutely you you know it's terrifying it's also however um careful and purposeful and we were developing procedures to manage risk 
and everything that I've done ever since is about that, is about risk and benefit uh, and how you are careful to make sure that your your benefits outweigh your risks, I guess, in, in, in each given situation. So how do, you, how do you avoid that risk? Because everything that we heard here in Australia was that it's super deadly. Like it, yeah, I think Australia went a bit heavy on the scare tactics, hey? Okay. You know? Because it was, it was big. The scare tactics were enormous. Yeah, I really yeah. struggled with that at the time because I think there was a little bit of... Um, I'm just getting nervous about what I'm saying on the internet now. No, don't, don't be silly. I'm not world famous <laughs> as a podcaster. It's all good. My mum might listen to it. <laughs> it will be right. I think, look, my, my understanding of an appropriate public health response to Ebola was probably not the same as the public health response that was in Australia. And it was very interesting to be in Geneva at the time where people were coming in and out far more freely. So Ebola... Um, is not uh, transmissible until you have symptoms. And that's an incredibly important core point that some people did struggle with. So most of us, you know, have grown up with chicken pox and measles and these things where you've got your fever and, mm. and your um, uh, transmissibility or infectivity before most of your symptoms come. It's not the case with Ebola. So you do have a window of knowing if you're well, you're well. And then mm-hmm. once you get sick, you're transmissible, but not before. So it's one thing. There was a huge amount of care put into how um, how we're attired. What you know, all these you'd have people dressing you with these layers of plastic and tape and spraying you with chlorine as you're getting undressed. So that, that those steps were developed with a great deal of caution and a great deal of success. Um, there were things that went wrong, as you as I'm sure people know. Um, I probably want to say that one of the biggest learnings from Ebola comes back a little bit to understanding how you know people live normal lives here, which was that a lot of the humanitarian sector had a lot of experience in delivering very basic public health type care and primary care in, in remote areas of Africa. What we needed in Ebola was, was intensive care and more sophisticated care. And there became a real learning curve as different organisations delivered different types of care. What I really learned from that was that something like ICU or something like some of what you're describing of the hospital where your mum and I work is um, I've struggled to see such high level care in Australia. And I guess I learned a bit that you've got to learn it somewhere Mm. and then let's work out how to transfer it. And I was quite grateful for critical care skills then back in the Ebola outbreak yeah and that would be so relevant in situations like Ebola and places that are like living a lot below the poverty lines and those places that you are going into but it's also true surely in the conflict zones mm. that that ICU set out set up is would be vital to lives yeah, I've certainly practiced more critical med- critical care medicine overseas than I do in Australia. I work in emergency medicine mainly in Australia, but most of the resuscitations and managing patients on adrenaline infusions and high-level care is in very austere places, yeah. 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 So then going back to your experience, your first experience over there working with Ebola, which is a pretty huge, <laughs> huge first step, um, how did you... I mean, you obviously went through all of the due diligence in understanding what you were going to, but how do you emotionally prepare for that? And what effect did it have on you 
there working in that setting and then later when you came to come home? Uh, well, there was a, a twist to the Ebola experience for me. So preparing, I think, was you prepare the best you can, don't you? You know, in your first experience, you, you don't really know what you're walking into. Do they help you? Absolutely. Um, for Ebola, more than anything, actually. I think MSF and, and Red Cross both had a lot of they had screening processes, um, briefing. I had a, a number of days of a course in Geneva of preparation, um, and they were very emphatic about debriefing for Ebola more than more than any other situation. So yeah, and then absolutely they're on hand at, at any time. Yes, so there's they're supportive in that way. Is that more technical support, so medical knowledge and expertise, or is it? On every level, like right down to the emotional level. It's on every level if you seek it out. Okay. I think most of us probably get emotional support from colleagues and friends and traditional places, but uh, those structures are there if, if you need them. Mm-hmm. I um, I was meant to be in Sierra Leone for six weeks, but I ended up actually only there for a few days because uh, we had a staff member die who mm. I was exposed to, so I was evacuated and um, spend a month in Geneva, walking the streets, passing the time. Wow. (laughs) So it was a little bit of a baptism of fire in some ways, and there's a lot of complexity surrounding that situation as it unfolded. Um, Certainly, I wanted to go back. There was no way I wanted to be but back in, in West Africa. So did you go back? No, I had no leave. So that was partly how some of the next phase started was I did email my employer and they said no you have to come back blah 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 so I came back and resigned and then took the next job with MSF yeah I mean that must be so hard when you're over there and you're seeing huge need I mean I get that employers must need their staff (laughs) because I know for it for a fact it's really hard managing a lot of people yeah absolutely Um, in our retail store it can be a very very big challenge but it must have it must have felt surely so hard for you in some ways to comprehend that i guess in, you know like i say on some levels i'm sure you understood it but on other levels you would have just been like you have no idea what i'm seeing over here yeah it's the real juggle and that's been a juggling act ever since i think i try to plan jobs in australia in pretty short periods of time because if something comes up overseas i will usually prioritize that and yet i work in remote areas in australia which are also understaffed so you're very mindful of not wanting to leave anyone in the lurch but also Kind of wanting to go where the need is greatest and that's a really hard balance mm. so where did you go after sierra leone uh so lebanon was the next stop um came well came back to australia and finished my little bit of contract and then i went to beirut no sorry to tripoli first tripoli did six months there coordinating a non-communicable disease program for syrian refugees mm-hmm. you know organizationally for msf this was still a reasonably new period of time to be working in non-communicable disease so we were trying to develop expertise and and protocols and still you know be effective which was a big learning curve for everyone and this is still an issue today yeah. this is still an issue today yeah. so are some of those systems that you set up then still at play now yeah, yeah. absolutely yeah there's um um it's actually hard to know all the details because you don't really have oversight once you've moved on to different projects 
we have people in head offices that maintain that oversight and so I don't know all the details of that but but absolutely what we've done in non-communicable disease has continued to grow and develop and being refined and improved um, but the needs are incredible as you know so is it your choice not to go back into the same places or there's just no need for you at your level of expertise to be back there or is it just to do with timing like yeah it's a little bit of both the we because we have in msf um a large proportion of people who come what we call first missioners so then we do try and keep some jobs that are good first missioner jobs and protect those a little bit and that was one of those okay it's not one that i would probably go back to now but um i did i did go back to lebanon so um an offshoot of that job was an offer to to come and be involved in developing a similar program in beirut in one of the old third generation palestinian camps which was just one of those moments of you know such privilege to see inside a society like that so i spent um, a little bit of time in in that camp in shatilla um, developing a bit of non-communicable disease care so there's some sort of translation of skills but sort of yeah, and you can go back into the same job at times, absolutely, but it wasn't the case at this stage. Mm. And it's part of the wandering soul. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <It's> hopelessly itchy <laughs> feet. Yeah, I've been caught. Possibly in the spotlight. Yeah, it's true. Um, what, what is it that makes you say it was so privileged to see inside that Palestinian experience in that camp? There's something about people's stories, isn't there? You know, just witnessing the way people live their lives according to their beliefs or their experience to what they bring to a moment versus what is imposed upon them the decisions they've made in light of that and you see that in conflict zones a lot of um you know those who stay and those who go and why they make the choices that they make there was a girl that i met in tripoli who was she was only in her 20s and she was stucking across the border every week back to Syria to go to school because she couldn't get any education at the time. That she, I think she was actually sorry in university, and she couldn't get that in in um, in Lebanon at the time. And I was just astounded at the risk she was taking at moving back and forth between Aleppo and Beirut. But to her, there was that sense of if I don't have a future, I don't have anything. So I'm going to do this. And, and so, you know, throughout all these experiences, and Shatila was one of them, you meet these people, you know, I met these women who were among the, the first to have ever um, left, you know, the disputed territories and, and come to Lebanon. So, yeah, just sort of, I think I'm just in awe. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, I just, I mean, I, I can't even, I, I don't think anyone listening to this, unless you've been there, would be able to understand what, what that sort of experience is like and to also be able to leave behind I guess that media portrayal of these cultures you know and know mm. firsthand and I was actually I had it down because you're heading to Ukraine soon and um, I've spent time in the Ukraine and I mean I went over there with an image of what that population was going to be like and I came home with a completely different image yeah, totally. and I think it happens every time you go anywhere yeah. you travel anywhere but um that you mentioned earlier about the stigma that gets created around cultures and people and places. Mm, yeah, yeah, yeah. So. it's true. I mean, you know, some 
some of the greatest kindness I ever experienced last year was in Mosul, you know, in this town in northern Iraq that is probably not anybody's first pick on their bucket list, or maybe some, but, um, but you know, these just incredibly kind, generous people that are there welcoming you and, and just deeply grateful that you've taken the time to come and work with them. Yeah. And so what, what were you doing in Iraq? So Iraq was, um, my position was in, um, it's called, was post-conflict at this time. So this is when the, you know, the sort of official fighting had finished and the city was very much a lot of rubble and there was not a lot of investment into rebuilding or even cleaning up. So uh, MSF is one of one organisations that was um, persisting and still there and the need was really immense. We had an emergency department that had been set up in West Mosul in the height of the conflict and we were in the process of trying to adapt that to the needs as refugees were returning to the city which really means moving it from a trauma department to an absolutely everything department. Um, so we had a team of local doctors who'd all been together since the commencement of the conflict and they were this sort of wonderful team who were very proud of their cohesiveness and they were just really keen to learn. So trying to work with them and build them up to have sort of ownership of that department and then trying to map out what um, other resources were increasingly available in the city and so what needs we could meet or what needs we didn't need to be involved with and how we could liaise with other actors to kind of help people get slightly more fluid healthcare throughout the city. And I imagine a huge part of that healthcare, although obviously it's a completely different culture, but would be in the dealing of the post effects of trauma. So not just like in a physical setting, but the emotional effects that you would have seen on people coming back as refugees back into the city. Yeah, I, to be fair, I see less of it because we have other people that do social and emotional well-being. Oh, okay. That's really interesting. Yeah, so it's – and you get so focused on your own remit to a degree. Um, I probably see more of the effects of conflict on my team of professionals and how they're dealing with it and how their families are and in conversation over lunch and such. Um, the interesting physical side for me is the effect of untreated disease – so I think when people think about conflict, they think about, you know, bullets and, you know, the obvious. But, you know, imagine two years without your epilepsy medications or your diabetes medications and the, um, yeah, the, the effect on people of not having any health care is just phenomenal. Mm. Mm. Although we sort of call them probably important but non-urgent conditions become a really big thing. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm skimming across all of them, but I'm aware of time and I can't take all your valuable time, <laughs> nor, nor the poor people listening on the other end. But um, I'm also curious to know then about South Sudan. Like you mentioned, that was incredibly challenging. So can we unpack it a little? Yeah, bit? sure. Yeah. So what, when, when for, um, to start off with, were you there? Like how, how long ago are we talking about? I arrived in South Sudan in May 2016 and I left in February 2017. So that's a huge post. That's a nine months. Nine months. It's pretty yeah. long for South Sudan. We just, some people will go for longer, but it's most would the majority would be shorter. Okay. And so what sort of work were you doing in South Sudan? So I was the medical activity manager of a 150-bed hospital in a remote area. So we, we operate within fairly careful structures within our staffing. So we have a, what's called a PMR or a... Um, 
project medical referent who's in charge of all medical activities and then under him in this case so there was me the medical activity manager and a nursing activity manager and then other staff in pharmacy and mental health and other areas but for the hospital it was the nursing activity manager and I so I was basically responsible for for how medicine evolved in this in this hospital and I had a team of um, 16 South Sudanese clinical officers and usually two expatriate um, uh, MDs and two surgeons and two anaesthetists. Anaesthetists were often local at that time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so you mentioned how challenging it was. Like, what was it that made it so challenging? Is it the fact that it, it was? Is it? It's still an active conflict zone with the internal yeah. situation that's going on there. Is that correct? Uh, yeah. So things are a little bit calmer at the moment in South Sudan, but it is a conflict zone. It's, it's very different to urban conflict. So the conflicts of, of uh, Mosul or Raqqa or that you might see on TV are um, a very different landscape to South Sudan. South Sudan is a little, is a rural, you know, rural and remote mm. areas. So certainly you will see gunshot wounds and such, but it's not by any means your daily landscape. We were in this very, um, yeah, fairly remote area in the north, in a in a compound, but with good movement of people in and out near near a village. And we had another health centre, um, two hours drive away on a good day, about twenty hours on a bad wet season day, and we retrieved patients from there as well. So yes, there's was war wounds. But more than anything, there was malnutrition and TB and HIV and very septic people, uh, a lot of malaria, um, meningitis and all those kind of classic, classic diseases. And is that what made it so hard or was it for how long you were exposed to it or a bit of everything? What made it hard was the need um, and this, you know, this feeling of having the skills that you could contribute something but only having so many hours in the day so um i think part of why i really loved that position was i was a little bit more experienced going into that position than some others who'd filled it before me and i was there for a long time so i had a chance to really merge with that job and i did find i think that i i could really bring something and and that's this sort of wonderful privilege and also this sort of heavy responsibility so it, I remember it took me about six weeks to learn to sleep, you know, just mm. because you, you didn't want to turn the radio off because if there was someone sick at night, then you wanted to be there. And to learn to, to just, not, not too much just to trust others with the on-call because there was already a first on-call, but I was sort of the permanent backup for everything. And it was more to learn to accept that sometime you had to sleep and that might mean someone died. Mm. And that, I think, is the single most confronting lesson of, of South Sudan for me. Yeah, and I guess it comes back to, it must be such a, a hard lesson eventually to have, but we're only as, like someone once said to me when I was going through a really tough period, and it's nothing compared to what you're talking about, and I put that out there. <laughs> but um, no, but if you, if you, if someone's trying to give, if you're trying to give a beautiful gift to someone, and all they see is a person on the other end of the gift who looks tired and worn out, beaten up. It doesn't matter how beautiful that gift is. Like, yeah, for they sure. They can't accept it. Yeah. And yeah. I guess it's that it's a little bit of the same. Like, you want to give your gift of 
healthcare and your knowledge and experience to these people but unless you're looking after yourself you can't give that gift. yeah it's really yeah. difficult it's a difficult it must be balance so hard. i think you know because i also think it's okay to push yourself to the edge you know yeah. and it's okay to say we're going to try and do this and we're going to do whatever we can do and we're going to believe this is possible but it means you change your strategies you know so i've certainly and um my colleague alfonso who was the pmr we got very invested in education because the best thing we could ever do there was was teach the the local teams um so that certainly became our, our focal point yeah and is that how you reconcile with what you're seeing a lot of the time like if you're giving your absolute best and pushing yourself almost to the edge to to deliver an exceptional service whether it's education or medicine that you that is how you cope if something <laughs> if something doesn't go right you lose someone there is a fatality which there will be no doubt in these yep. situations because i read about them as well. <laughs> there's a few of them yeah. look i think there's nothing unique or exceptional about me or about what i do this is medicine is not rocket science you know i'm just privileged to have these skills and so i go take them and you try and disperse them as widely as you can and and help other people to be able to do that because yeah the, the need is 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 very big in a place like south sudan um it needs a functioning healthcare system mm. and that's that's a fair way off mm. um yeah people die that's um that's a big topic actually um I was sitting in a conference in Sydney a couple of years ago when people were talking about, you know, the effect of the death of a child in an ED, and I found myself feeling really quite scornful. And that's, you know, that's not a fair response, but I'd seen so many paediatric deaths, and it was hard to understand why people were going to... We were creating such a big narrative around it. And again, it's not that it's wrong, but it's such a different cultural context. The flip side of that is, um, I think it was in one of the writing pieces, but it was something that had a really profound effect on me, was I always felt a little bit like the international staff had a sense of preparedness to see death. Whereas, um, you know, a South Sudanese woman would come to the hospital not expecting her child to die, they'd be mm. expecting them to live, you know. And so the, you know, the depth of, of grief of any person losing any child is just, does, does not change they are not immune to it in the way that perhaps we are when we see an awful lot of emaciated people on television this is their life and you become i think much more involved in the um empathy of that that particular narrative in that moment but do you find over time you're getting you're getting tougher like you're more resilient more walls around your heart a little like to block some of the pain or you do you, like because you you did mention it you, someone had once said to you you can only love one war and yeah. you were saying no 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 like I've loved pretty much I think every war you <laughs> or conflict or zone you've been in yeah that's a quote from a Yaninda Giovanni book um it's a wonderful war correspondent but she's actually quoting Martha Gellhorn I think in that you can love one war. I've, I've really believed you can love a lot more than one, but it's also true that South Sudan kind of claimed my heart, so maybe she was right all along. Um, I don't think... I, I, I've been very careful not to put walls around my heart. I think that's probably left me quite vulnerable and had to take a longer route to survival, maybe. 
Um, I am fairly resilient. I don't quite know why, other than that a really great network of friends and family, but I seem to keep turning up for more. And you do acquire those skills. You're absolutely right. I think if you just decide to keep turning up, you start to acquire some of those skills. Resilience for me has been more about finding ways through. Um, and it's still hard. It's, you know, it, it's hard. Uh, one thing I, I think I spoke about recently in a talk in, in Fiji was, um, you know, you, uh, you think that all these areas are resource poor. One of the things I find hardest is being in a situation where the resources are there, but the skills are not. Mm. And you see people die that I would view as a preventable death. And I just, you know, I remember messaging that to a friend of mine from Iraq and saying, I just wish I wasn't as affected by this. And she was like, yeah, I think it's okay to be affected by preventable death, you know. Mm. Uh, so, no, it doesn't, it doesn't go away. And I, I don't think I want it to go away. Okay. Huh, <laughs> I'm just like, like I guess, because we can't, we can't understand what you've been through, like, and what you see. But you, I guess you're trying to think about well, what, what do I reckon I'd be like in that situation? <laughs> and I had this conversation with my mother, who's an emergency physician, and um, having breakfast with her the other morning. I said, like, what would you want to know from Amy? And and a lot of it was that, like, how do you how do you stay strong in those situations? How do you come home from those situations and be able to go back to what we would call like the normal life, like the, the Western life and privileged life that we live here? And um, yeah, and not, I guess, bring it all home with you. I mean, mm. I guess you must bring it home, but you've found ways that you're slowly dealing with it. And Look, I, I have and I haven't, you know, I don't think I'm any expert at not, at coming home. Um, yeah. I've managed, I've managed with a very, generous friends and family though who you know have also felt the effects at times and you know that 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 very question has been the driver behind deciding to make humanitarianism my long-term career rather than Australian medicine I don't mm-hmm. think I could be the person that works predominantly in Australia and then goes off and does short bursts overseas I my heart is there and that's where I want to be and I find the transition hard mm-hmm. the transition is really hard yeah do you mind us walking through like what it's like you you come back out of somewhere like this and you get back on the plane and get back to <laughs> a, a more normal life and I'm trying to, yeah, trying yeah. to piece it out myself but like do you find that you just want to hibernate do you find that you need to be with people and talk the whole time do you it's a bit of both and I think what's really hard is the the labile nature of that and that's where I say my family are very tolerant I think in that um they are around and my my sister has three small children and has always really encouraged my role in their life which i really appreciate because kids have this way of creating noise and a net and normalcy that when you just want to fall into that pattern you can you know and she's really made that possible then i have other moments when i just can't talk to anyone and i really I, i'm a big hibernator in a lot of ways and can be quite short with people and and then you know you feel so bad and you um but so yeah i think that that liability is is a little bit difficult um uh yeah and what are some of the sacrifices that happen like by living this life i mean you're on the road a huge amount you're (laughs) even in australia you've moved from like recently alice springs and working in an aboriginal setting down to an indigenous setting down to Tasmania again you know 
what's it like what are the sacrifices i think it's true that you can do anything in life but you can't have everything yeah (laughs) i guess you know this pretty well so i don't have a home uh that's a common topic of conversation in msf many people would like to have one and don't it's a not an organization that pays much money you know it's essentially sort of considered a volunteer amount or a low salary um so it wouldn't be possible to earn that and and buy a home in australia i would need to stay and work in australia and and for sure that option is available to me but it's not the right thing for me so um in some ways that's been a sacrifice in other ways I, i probably see it more as a choice um it certainly affects your relationships um and again, that's okay. Like I probably, you know, I've had other long-term relationships in younger years and now it's not the focus. So, and there are certainly people within MSF that have long-term relationships and then they need to make choices around that. Mm. At the moment, my priority is returning to field work. So I do that in a pretty independent fashion. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm. And so you are returning to field work, like you're heading back to you, or you're going to the Ukraine. So what's yeah. what's the role there in the Ukraine? Uh, this is a little bit of an exploratory role, and it's not one that I know a lot about right now. It's probably one I'll have more information when I get there. But there is an ongoing um, conflict in the east of the Ukraine, um, and we're looking at having some role in again in education in emergency skills mm-hmm. so that local providers can can look after people best they can ukraine was like a one of the poorest countries i've been to that's technically in europe yeah <laughs> but um but had a huge huge social issues as okay well. and just we, like when we got there we um we'd reached out to through the orienteering like the sporting community and asked if there was a local club or family that we could come and I was there traveling there with my partner at the time and um if we could come and do some coaching work and some volunteer work and in return could we possibly like have a roof over our heads and it happened that a family were heading off to another competition somewhere else in Europe and pretty much gave us their house for... Wow, that's was, We were there for about a month yep. um, leading up to the... Well, when, whenever the Australian team came in. And so we stayed with them for one night <clears throat> before they left. It was a two-bedroom apartment. Like, tight, like in Australian standards, it would be a small one-bedroom apartment. Um, there were three children, a mum and dad. Mm-hmm. The mum and dad's bedroom was in the living room yeah. and every night they'd fold out their mm-hmm. bed that they'd had for 25 years. Um, the, one of the kids slept under the kitchen table, the other two shared a single bed in the other room. And um, and then it was it was just a phenomenal place. Like we had running water, but everything was lukewarm running water. And all the drinking water was from a well down yeah. in the complex. And there was 150,000 people living in the space of like what would be a normal suburban block. Yeah. It yeah. was just incredible. Cra- incredible. Yeah. And the only way they had to dispose of the rubbish was these chutes in the in the stairwell where you just pop all your rubbish. Yeah. And they eat like a very meat-based diet so you can imagine what it was like. Oh, my gosh. And it would get emptied out once every two weeks. So it would just fester in the bottom oh, of this. Wow. Building, yeah. so the whole building smelled like it. Mm. It was just um, an amazing experience. Like all of the food came from people just sitting on the streets mm. or little local markets on a weekend. Um, yeah, yeah, it really was 
amazing and the rubbish like just remember mm-hmm. rubbish mm-hmm. everywhere like mm-hmm. not just scattered rubbish but piles and piles of rubbish where people couldn't even walk down the sidewalks they just walk in the middle of the road yeah. when we were there yeah. but what I just remember was these people like had nothing but the generosity was enormous yeah, yeah. yeah. which has probably been your experiences overseas but yeah I mean it breaks my heart to think there's a war there now and we're just not hearing anything about it you know we heard a lot when it first began to happen but now it's not on the radar like most of these conflicts so yeah it's true and look to to my own shame I don't know an awful lot about it either and I sort of will wait and see till I get there before I can probably comment too much but um it has certainly been dubbed a forgotten conflict I think yeah um so I'm yeah incredibly so how do you prepare then for something that like is there a fear associated I mean knowing it's a conflict zone you know, knowing you don't know anything. <laughs> like, I'm just kind of uh, curious. Fair call. So I guess some of this is probably experience in the organisation. So MSF works in pretty clear structures where we have medical teams, logistic teams, um, finance, HR, admin, and then sort of politics, security. And, you know, you go in with a degree of trust that people are, are doing their jobs. Um, I do have some briefing papers that give me some um, information about the, the security situation. That's not public information at this stage. And um, uh, when I get there, then you'll be briefed in more detail about what's what's appropriate and what's relevant. But but we take a, a huge amount of care to be you know respecting local populations in conflict. So all of that information is is treated with I guess a great deal of kind of care and caution. Yeah. Um, no, I don't feel unsafe. I think you always have moments when you do feel unsafe, and then you have to make a decision of whether you stay in that in that time and place and certainly people leave situations where they feel unsafe um the a job like msf when you're trying to put in as few international staff as you can there's a really it's really important to stay in your lane Mm -hmm. so the preparation for me is more about um trying to get as much information as i can on what the needs will be of what they want me to teach and what they would like me to be developing and you know, sort of be as up to date with my own reading on on that so it's really it's really the medicine you know which is the core business for, for me you hmm. know. and then probably one final area I was interested to explore is just when you're on the ground there like say South Sudan you're there for nine months and you know I know you from <laughs> swimming so you're an active person you obviously love to lead a healthy lifestyle and stuff like how do you what are the challenges like there? Like, what what sort of services do you have for living? And yeah, so it's really hard. Hey, um, I think everyone's got a few little tricks that they use. Um, most of us probably exercise to stay sane more than healthy. I think um, some of it is that you you really do live a slightly simpler life in a lot of places. So your diet tends to be uh, healthier to some degree. Might be a bit lean, but it's probably healthier. Um, exercise yeah, is often more about um, you know coping mentally so South Sudan was easy because we had a big compound and I was always running in around the hospital so I, I was actually sort of just very active in that capacity we did have a treadmill which I saw someone use once but mostly it was a you know hanging clothes feature <laughs> um, and a lot of people did yoga and that was a that was more common in South Sudan I think there was really a need to switch off and relax um, because it was just a constant, constantly busy hospital and you had to make purposeful time to learn to relax. 
The, the difficulties for me are actually the conflict zones in the Middle East where we can't move around so freely. And you know, most Australians probably have, are a bit similar to me. Mm. I, when I was in Mosul, I had some Japanese colleagues who I was just amazed at how well they coped with the small spaces. Whereas the German pediatrician and I were like on the treadmill at the end of the day, every day, <laughs> you know, racing each other up the stairs to just burn off some steam because we were sitting in the car for an hour each way, getting to and from the hospital and then couldn't really move much once we were in the, in the house. So we use that. Uh, in Syria, I skipped and skipped and skipped and skipped and skipped and I hate skipping, but yeah. You just sort of have to do something. So, yeah, yeah running, skipping yoga and running probably are the most common. Yeah. Um, and then I swim on holidays. Mm. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Because yeah. it is, it must be such a, a challenging area. And I know that that was something that you, you've actually spoken about. Mm. And, and, um, and mum raised it again when I, she was asking, well, when I, when I was asking her about questions that she would have for you. And I guess, like, I mean, I've never been in that situation, but um, I have been coming back from what is effectively a broken foot. Mm -hmm. And it's three months of having the sole of your foot where you feel like you can't stand on it. Yeah, wow. It's amazing, and I can't bend my toes. So things like even the movement of water can really upset my foot. So I can't ride, I can't run, I can't walk. I couldn't swim for a long period of time. Um... And it, it is effectively like getting caged. <laughs> and I guess what it has done for me is made me think that a lot of the time it's just about your headspace. Okay. And as harsh as it sounds like, and I have no idea what it's like to be trapped in a room without being able to exercise or, um, you know, not be able to go out without a million layers on it's 40 degrees. But, but at the end of the day, I'm still coming back to like, if you have the choice of wanting to or not doing it and Mm, that choice of not doing it isn't a choice then it's about like changing the headspace around what what you can do yeah and um what it like i've I've started playing with a few techniques okay great no i'm kidding but um the first one is i've started imagining that um i have a switch on my left shoulder like and i imagine it like a light switch and when it's off I'm in either self-compassion mode um, or I'm just in normal honey mode. Mm-hmm. And for me, it's really important to turn it off because I'm probably like you. Like I'm, when I'm doing something, I'll get completely intoxicated by it. Like Absolutely. I'll bury myself. And the risk is if I always have my switch on, I find it really hard to turn off. Yeah. And I find it really hard then to like not take out that maybe that stress or that overexcitement or that frustration or that feeling of needing to hibernate and get on with life and get all my jobs done find it really hard not to like bring that into my my life and my relationships and even my ability to like sit in a bath and turn my brain off yeah totally so what i've now started doing is like at the start of the day and at the end of the day just imagine flicking the switch off so work mode goes off mm-hmm. the other switch that i have there and sometimes it's the same switch is like some days i the last thing i want to do is see another bloody running machine <laughs> <laughs> i've worked out it's about the only thing i can do like if yeah, i don't well. if i don't rest my feet properly on the pedals mm-hmm. and i don't bend my legs and i don't use my legs and i can use my arms and mm-hmm. i can row mm-hmm. but um some days you just like i can't I can't deal with it yeah, again totally. and i flick my switch on and i enter I enter that like 
it's just do it mode. And I know I always feel better afterwards, but what I find is if I don't flick the switch on, okay. I'll get on that rowing machine and I'll hate life and I won't want to be there and I normally won't yeah. won't often get through my goal that I've had for yeah. myself for that morning. So like when you're picking up your skipping rope, even if I can't change your activity and I don't know what you can do, like I think you can change the, the approach you have for it. So you might have multiple switch. You might have a left switch and a right switch on your mm-hmm. shoulders. Like mm-hmm. one might be work mode on and off, and one might be like mm-hmm. self compassion mode or exercise mode on and off. But it, it really makes a difference. That's great. I love that yeah. idea. That yeah, what you the the mindset that you bring to yeah. that exercise moment. Yeah. And so and then sometimes like you need to bring it. You need to bring that technique in like halfway. Mm-hmm. So, for instance, you might be um, you might be excited to go into the little gym and find the treadmill and you get on it and you start out and you know you just want to be like relatively kind on yourself but suddenly your brain comes to life Mm -hmm. 10 minutes in and you're like shit you want off i I want off i've got to get like i I don't really even know what i've got to go and do but i've I've got to go and do something and you find it really hard to focus and sometimes having that switch at that moment can be really helpful so you turn it on and you're like i came here to be compassionate and to give myself some out time and to have some movement and some exercise yeah but i need to kind of force myself to stay here so i'm going to turn the switch Mm. on and you coming from an athlete life can make it even easier for you to turn that switch on because mm. you can be like Amy who's here for self-compassion switches off actually Amy you just got to get on with it and you've got to keep some fitness so I'm going to turn athlete mode on yeah and you know what it's like to be doing butterfly sets you don't want to be doing <laughs> <laughs> oh I miss butterfly sets yeah. <laughs> so I don't know like for me no, that's, that's right. really Thank you. I my brain that. and the other one that I've um started thinking about is a little bit of like a little um alter ego mode Mm -hmm. so for instance like i'm trying to make the move away from competitive elite sport but sometimes it's a bit like turning the switch on but sometimes i just need to i need to find that athlete in me i need to find that drive and i'll turn on that like Hanyu was a world champion and super driven before she won that world title and and that's something that you could easily do too is like those days when you're just really struggling with your mojo, it's like, I'm not going to go to the gym as Amy. I'm going to go to the gym as Amy, the you know, elite swimmer that I was. Or Elite might be a stretch. Or pick, pick a different <laughs> alter ego. The Susie O'Neill, the... <laughs> the vaguely competent, you know. <laughs> the roadrunner and Taz Devil, I don't know. Like, but, but having an alter ego is actually quite useful. Okay. I and like sometimes it. it can be like someone you admire. So you might be skipping along like, I hate life, hate life, hate life. And you'd be like what would that like person that I really admire yeah. let's pick someone like Suhiania what would she do yes yeah. I'm skipping along here and yeah. it's amazing the change in your mindset I like it um, so that was fun I had another day when I was heading to the gym and I was like I'm so I so don't want to look at that rowing machine and do more abs <laughs> that's all I can do and then I thought this this is like a playground like if you put a kid in that setting they'll quite happily entertain themselves for like an hour, two hours, three hours. True. And so I just went with this mindset of like, I'm a kid. I'm a kid in a playground. What can, what trouble can I get up to? <laughs> and like, amazingly, 90 minutes later, I popped up here and it was the f- most fun I've ever had in the gym. I just tried everything, everything yeah. that I could, even if I couldn't use my legs, I was like, well, <laughs> I'll try it anyway, you know? And um, 
I got a lot of weird looks because I probably did everything <laughs> wrong. But it, but it was it was a good mindset to yeah, have. Yeah. Um, and I've worked with, a lot with people who work exceptionally busy lives or corporate lives where they're traveling a lot. We talk about things like when you're in transits of airports and journeying somewhere, always carry a change of clothes, like mm-hmm. gym clothes or running clothes. And when they get to an airport, if they've got a layover, they change out of their travel clothes. Yeah. They put on their running clothes, their gym clothes, and that's that signal to switch okay. the switch on. Yeah. Um, yeah. And then just trek around the airport. Yeah, no. Nice. But you're, because you're in your running clothes or your gym clothes, you're in exercise that mode. Yeah. And so you might also have like one set of clothes which is purposely set aside for exercise okay and as soon as you pull them on you're in exercise mode and it's that association yeah yeah Yeah. and so we found things like yeah that's great you might only have one hallway yeah but if you walk up and down that hallway a hundred times as much as you think it might do your head in if you have a different mindset and you do that exercise it won't do your head in nice yeah and so for him like for a lot of these people that i've worked with it's like in hotels Okay. around the hallways outside yeah. the hotel rooms yeah. around the block if they don't feel safe enough to yeah. go anywhere else or it's too busy they just go around the same block because they don't have to cross streets okay um and it's just changing changing your landscape but yeah, nice. yeah so i don't know if any of that helps no all of that helps that's great <laughs> i'll have to take some notes um, i like the the penultimate one that you were saying then i'd like because it was something i've noticed on your website was this notion of play and play wilder and that's just wonderful use of words say i mean certainly the you know the the sense of wildness really resonates but just i i really enjoyed seeing the use of that word play and of how you you know getting so much pleasure out of out of activity and 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 as you say just approaching it a different way mm-hmm. yeah and i i i'm glad and it's nice you picked up that so we've both picked up stuff from each other's work but um for me, I think, I mean, I hear, like, you're like me, you're a high achiever. Like, if you're going to do something, you want to give it heart and soul. Like, you want to do it well. And if you're always trying to come in at that top level, and I call that the perform wild, okay. like, to do these really extraordinary things and do them well, you can't do that without a foundation underneath. Yeah. Um, it's a really – either it'll feel like a hollow sense of success – or it'll be fleeting because there's nothing of substance holding it up. Mm-hmm. And for me, the substance that holds up your ability to perform at the top of your game and to master what you're meant to master in life begins with play wild. Sorry, be wild, then play wild. Okay. Um, so be wild for me is about what we began the conversation with, which is understanding your values, like understanding who you are as a person and the daily decisions that empower yourself mm. to be the best version of you. And it's like Amy without being a doctor. It's Honey when she's not running around the world with two guests and um, running running a business. You mm-hmm. know, mm-hmm. for me, like Honey is Honey. Like, mm-hmm. yeah. Um, and she is the values that she lives her life by and the choices that she chooses to make. And it, I guess it's living with a conscious conscience sure. and conscious life. Um, then I think once you have a really strong sense of yourself, then you can really ask yourself the question what do i love Mm. what do i love and there might be multiple things that you love and do that and do it unapologetically and so if that's you know being on the road and going to these places and your medicine and your swimming like 
don't apologize for that like Mm. just do it and embrace it and I find then that that performance just comes organically off that because you're now living with such purpose and such drive Mm. that you like you were saying you can't wait to read up about these places you're going to Mm. you can't Mm. wait to learn all this stuff that then sets you up to feel like you're performing at your a game and um so yeah that's kind of for me like my little be well, play well, perform well. Love it. My motto in life. <laughs> so, um, oh, it's, it's yeah. incredible. Thank you. Oh, sorry, I went on a monologue. <laughs> no, I, really, I, I honestly just really appreciate it. I think those sorts yeah. of perspectives and of, of how of how you can frame some of what you're seeing and trying yeah. to do. And, and it, you know, it all comes into that sort of sustainability of, of lives. You know, and yeah. I, I, um, I sort of steadfastly avoid the words balance and happiness because I just think they get used in a way that can become pejorative and so rather how you can take what is a little bit extreme or a bit passionate or a bit different and as you say own it unapologetically yeah uh, but also not just survive it but thrive through that you know is is certainly a challenge and I will take all the tips I can get (laughs) so I really love that's the beauty because everyone I believe in life has something that they're here to master and I feel like I was talking about it with with mum actually when we were, were talking about this podcast but I feel like so much of what you see you know in the way Olympic athletes will prepare for an Olympic Games is no different to what you have to prepare for to go into a conflict zone mm. you know the, the the approach and the skill set and the preparation there's so much crossover and if we can understand and learn from one another no matter whether we're working with bees or fire or medicine or true, runners true. you know going on holiday like in reality <laughs> like yeah, there's so sure. much so much crossover so yeah. that that really excites me yeah that's cool. <laughs> um, I can't thank you enough for taking time. No, the thanks is <laughs> thank you. Going through this. I really um, appreciate the chance to chat. Yeah, and so can people reach out to you? Yes, of course. Yeah. Um, so anyone's welcome to email me if they've got any questions. Cool. So yeah, I don't have a Facebook or Twitter account, but I'm very happy to answer emails. Um, so that's just amy, so A-M-Y dot A dot Nielsen, N-E-I-L-S-O-N at gmail.com. Um, so feel free to get in touch otherwise my only little internet presence is is linked in at this stage so yeah yeah cool we might put some links to your just a little like contact Amy so your email's hidden but we might put a contact Amy for people if they want to reach out or they can reach me and I'll pass them through and that's been happening more and more with our guests so I'm like super excited and like grateful to the community listening for like engaging and supporting these people like yourself who are doing extraordinary things so thanks thanks for your time honey it's amazing to see you